You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Bill and Melinda Gates are getting a divorce. If you're finding this out for me, you're the last to know. So glad you're coming out of that coma. And while we're talking, I've got some really sad news for you about Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee, Liza Minnelli and David Guest, Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden, George IV and Carolina Brunswick, all divorced. Anyway, I really don't have much to say about the Gates divorce. Billions of pixels have been pumped out about it over the last couple of weeks. And I'm sorry, I don't have any special insights. I've lived in Seattle for decades, but I've never met Bill or Melinda Gates. The closest I've come is biking past the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation building downtown. It's okay. Not a blight on the landscape, but certainly not a building preservationists are going to be fighting to save in 100 years. But I did want to weigh in on this. Megan Stack, a journalist at the LA Times, tweeted this out after Bill and Melinda announced that they could no longer grow together as a couple. Sometimes there's that one small detail about a famous person that sticks with you for years. And for me, it's been that Bill Gates negotiated into his marriage the right to take an annual beach house weekend with his ex-girlfriend. Okay, to be clear and to be fair, Stack only shared a fact about Gates that had been stuck in her head for a long time. A fact about Bill and Melinda that they had shared publicly. Stack herself didn't make any value judgments. She didn't cast any aspersions, throw any stones. Her followers and the people who saw her tweet after it went viral, on the other hand, they did. A lot of people thought this detail told us everything we needed to know about Bill Gates, only a terrible person would make such a demand, and everything we needed to know about Bill and Melinda Gates' marriage, obviously doomed from the start. Okay, this detail that Bill asked Melinda if he could continue his tradition of getting together with an ex once a year over a three-day weekend It's from a 1997 Time Magazine profile of Gates. I just read the whole thing. If you read this epic, really long 20-year-old piece, which is more than everyone out there tweeting about it did, if you read it, you'll learn that Bill Zacks is a software entrepreneur like Bill and a venture capitalist, five years his senior. They broke up long before he met Melinda, and they appear to have had more of an intellectual connection than a sexual one. Bill and his ex were rarely in the same place at the same time, and their idea of a hot date, according to Time, was to go to the same movie at the same time in their respective cities and then talk about it on the phone after. Hot. And according to Gates, on those weekend getaways, he and his ex liked to play putt-putt and discuss biotechnology. If I were Melinda, I'd be only too delighted not to be invited. Look, Bill Gates may be a terrible person. I think you should just assume anyone with billions of dollars is a terrible person. Like Balzac said, behind every great fortune lies a great crime. So while I've never met a billionaire, if I ever do, certainly if I ever date one, my plan is to assume that he or she could happen. My plan is to assume that this billionaire who's dating me is a terrible person and be pleasantly surprised if they're not or experience the joy of having my priors confirmed if they are. And really, there's nothing sweeter than having your priors confirmed, am I right? So yeah, Bill Gates may be a terrible person, but this anecdote, it isn't proof. His friendship with Jeffrey Epstein, on the other hand, that comes closer in my mind. 
But here are a few things we know for sure about the Gates marriage. It worked for 27 years. Bill's request to take those getaways with his ex didn't destroy their marriage. Their marriage would have ended before it began 27 or 8 years ago if Melinda couldn't tolerate these trips, assuming she even gave a shit about them. And contra almost everyone on Twitter, it's possible that this accommodation, this allowance, is what made it possible for Bill and Melinda Gates to be together all this time. Sometimes people are friends with their exes. Sometimes people hook up with their exes every once in a while with the consent of their currents. Some marriages are open. And even if Bill and his ex were fucking, and my close reading of that Time Magazine piece says they weren't, I don't think they were fucking when they were together, but even if they were... That doesn't mean the Gates marriage was doomed or a lie. Some marriages are open. Some are wide open. Some are open just a crack. Some have very narrow carve-outs. And for all we know, Melinda had a carve-out or two request of her own going in. Look, Bill and Melinda had a good run. Their kids are adults. They eradicated polio together. By any metric, this connection, this marriage was a success. Even if they both got out of it alive. And those weekends away with his ex may have made that success possible for all anyone who isn't Bill or Melinda Gates knows. Look, I understand the temptation to look at a marriage that's ending and try to identify the one simple reason why it's ending. I have to resist that urge in myself. But looking for a sign that Bill and Melinda Gates' marriage was doomed from the start, or the marriage of George IV and Caroline Brunswick was doomed from the start, looking for a sign like that... You know, it doesn't make your marriage any safer or stronger. And that's really what's going on in the responses to Megan Stack's tweet about Bill Gates asking Melinda for her permission, for her consent, to see his ex every once in a while. Oh, look at them getting divorced. Well, you know, they did this thing we would never do. Or she agreed to this thing I would never agree to. So, of course, they're getting divorced 27 years later. That won't happen to me. My marriage is safe. Look, here's my advice. It's bad luck to whistle past the world's second most densely populated graveyard. The place where we bury our marriages is only second to the place where we bury ourselves. So to anyone out there who heard this detail about the Gates marriage and then thought or tweeted, doom, doom from the start, but not me, not mine, because we would never. Yeah. If you're still together after three decades and while together, you and your spouse eradicated a disease that had plagued mankind for centuries, then you can make judgments and throw stones. Until then, you can shut the fuck up. Okay, coming up on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. More questions, more guests, no ads for Magnum subscribers. One of our favorite sex educators, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, joins us to answer some questions about multiple orgasms and sex headaches. That's on the Magnum. Tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast. All that coming up right now. Hey, Dan. Uh, this is a cis female in Los Angeles, California, uh, 38 years old, and I have a bit of a pandemic quarantine success story. I know we're coming out of it a little bit now, and I think I'm getting the equivalent of a late night sup text that can only happen during a pandemic. So far, I am up to five guys who've been hookups in the past who have sent me a photo of their vaccination card with the message, how are you? I'm vaxxed. 
or something like that. I wonder if this is happening to other women. And uh, I just, I find it really funny. And I think it's a success, both in that, um, you know, past tickets like me, but also we're coming out of it and people are getting that. I hope other people are getting these messages, but I also think it's pretty funny as a cultural phenomenon. Thank you for calling to share what is more of an impending success story than a success story, but I will allow it in the hopes that it encourages other people out there to get vaccinated because I'm vaxxed is going to be the new you up. Don't miss out on the Whoring 20s, people. Get vaxxed now and give us a call if you have a success story to share, and we might open next week's Lovecast with your success story. Hey, Dan, 30s, male, East Coast. Quick quickie for you here. This is on the issue of ghosting. I'm trying to be a more responsible dater, uh, and I've moved away from ghosting, which is a practice that I undertook in the past. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. It was the easy way out. But regarding this, let's say I see someone once, you know, we meet her online, we go out for a coffee date. Am I allowed to basically, do I, do I owe that person an explanation of like, hey, listen, I'm not interested? Or is it kind of just understood? So I guess like, is ghosting conditional on the length that you know the person? I dated someone four times. I had a I had a virtual date and three in-person dates. It just seems like it's not going where I wanted it to, and I'm I'm not interested. I feel like I'm not ghosting the person because I haven't followed up since our last date. But neither has she, right? And if she did, I would respond. So I wouldn't just ignore her. But I feel like I'm not that interested, and she seems to not be. She's not reaching out to me. So maybe. We can just leave it where it is. Both sides kind of have a implicit understanding. Is that fair? Is that a fair understanding of it? Or should do I still need to reach out and say, hey, I'm not interested? Uh, or, or would that maybe just kind of cause unnecessary harm if it's already seemingly implied? Is it the easy way out? Really? Ghosting? I, I've never ghosted anyone that I can recall and I'm aware of. Maybe back in the rotary dial days. I didn't return a phone call. I don't want to get deposed or I don't want somebody coming out of the woodwork to accuse me of being a hypocrite. But I don't see ghosting as necessarily the easy way out, at least personally, because I would be worried if I ghosted on someone that I had been seeing and just stopped returning their calls and fell off the face of the earth, that I would run into that person at the gym, at a bar, at a club, in an airport. Now that airports are things we can go to again. And I would be so stressed out by the possibility of running into somebody that I not only didn't want to see again, and that's awkward enough to begin with, but then I compounded that, not wanting to see them again, with the assholery of just going silent and, and not returning their calls or responding to their texts. Because I wouldn't want that person, you know, if you dump somebody and you run into them in public months or even a year or two later, you're probably going to get a bit of a dagger look. But if you ghosted on them, you're going to get daggers on steroids flying at you from across the room and karma being what karma is. And I'm not a spiritual person. The odds that if you run into somebody that you ghosted at the airport, the odds of you being seated next to each other on that flight seem to me to be high. So the stress of having to worry about running into somebody I've ghosted would make ghosting seem to me at least not to be the easy way out. As for the, you know, not responding after one coffee date, again, uh, you know, if you don't hear from them in, in a day or two and they haven't heard from you in a day or two, 
mutual disinterest has probably been established. I think etiquette demands and good behavior demands that you send a brief message. It was really nice to meet you. Thank you for your time. I didn't feel like we connected. You seem like a great person. I wish you well. How hard is it to send that message? Now I know that if you are a woman and you send that message, you're likely to get an argument. You're very likely to get a response from a guy, one of those guys who believes that you're not allowed to stop dating him without his permission. You don't need anybody's permission to stop dating them. Getting dumped, as I've said a million times, is the only thing in love and relationship land where consent is irrelevant or the other person's consent is irrelevant. If somebody argues with you about a text like that, nice to meet you, thank you for your time, I don't feel like we connected, that just confirms that you made the right decision or that your assessment of them from that coffee date was the correct one and you don't want to see them again, you shouldn't want to see them again, and you made the right call. Now, the situation you described where you went on a coffee date, you went on three dates, you weren't feeling it, you got the impression they weren't feeling it, and neither of you has reached out, I guess that's not felony ghosting, right? Felony ghosting is when, you know, you've been on a date or two or three and someone follows up with you about making plans for another date or about plans you made on your last date to get back together again and you just don't respond. That is felony ghosting. That is a crime. You should go to jail. If you went out on three dates and you didn't reach out and they didn't reach out, that's kind of mutual ghosting. But again, I would circle back to not the easy way out. If only because you don't want to live with the stress of running into them again, you want to do the right thing. You want to, even if they haven't reached out to you to say, Hey, thank you for your time. Nice to meet you. Not feeling it. Even if you suspect they're not feeling it either. I think you should Send that text. You should make that really small effort to be a human being, if not only to protect yourself against the, you know, super serious daggers on steroids if you run into that person in public again, but, you know, it is just as you might run into that person again. It's a really small world. You might wind up dating someone that that person works with or from their wider social circle or their best friend. Those sorts of things do happen. And the last thing you want, if you've just started to see someone that you actually are into and want to keep seeing, is for that person to be best friends with or on really friendly co-working terms with or in the wider social circle of someone you ghosted, whether it was a felony ghosting or a mutual ghosting. You don't want that person to shit talk you to the new person that you just started seeing that they happen to know about what an asshole you were. And they, they didn't hear from you after the third date or they reached out to you after the first coffee date and you just were silent. So I think you should err on the side of sending those polite, if awkward, they're awkward to send. They're much more awkward and uncomfortable to get. But those messages that say, hey, thank you for your time, not feeling it. It didn't feel like you were feeling it either. I wish you well. It's not that hard. And then when you see him at the airport or you see him at the gym or you see him at the restaurant – you can give them a little nod without having to feel guilty about the ghosting on top of the rejection. Rejection can't be avoided. We all have our fair share coming to us. Ghosting can always be avoided. There's really no excuse for it. Send that text. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. 32-year-old heterosis female from Canada's West Coast here looking for some advice regarding anal sex. I've been with my husband for 13 years, three married, and he has been my only sexual partner, and I was his second sexual partner. 
My husband loves anal sex. It's his one thing outside of our admittedly vanilla sex life, although we do include toys occasionally and we have a decent mix of oral, PIV, and outer course. After 10 years of saying no to anal, I finally gave in and we very, very occasionally added it to our repertoire. I know he would rather do it more often. He makes jokes literally every day, multiple times a day, about getting that ass, playfully smacking my butt, and making a comment about it, etc. These comments and jokes are all very lighthearted and in passing, but it lets me know that it's on his mind a lot of the time. Dan, this is my problem. I really dislike anal sex. I have physical and emotional hangups about it, and I don't know what to do to resolve it. Physically, to me, it is not pleasurable at all. We slowly worked up to anal by using well-lubed fingers and toys to get used to the sensation, and it's definitely an intense feeling, but not one that I look forward to or crave to experience. And when we do actual anal, I'm basically just gripping the bedsheets and hoping he comes quickly so it can be over. Before you start thinking my husband is an asshole, though, pardon the pun, I should let you know that every time we have done it this way, I have been the one to initiate it and give explicit consent to do so. He is also very communicative and asks frequently if I'm okay and if I want to keep going or stop. We've only had to stop a couple of times because it was too painful for me to endure, and he stops immediately, no questions. He also knows that I can't come from penetrative sex, so he usually gets me off beforehand to try to loosen me up and get me really turned on to hopefully make it better for me. I also have weird emotional hang-ups with anal sex as well. Although I have thankfully never been sexually assaulted, I get very negatively affected by media portrayals of anal as they are always traumatic scenes of sexual assault. I get a strong, visceral reaction and nearly want to curl into a ball and have to look away and cover my ears like I'm a child. And the memory of it will keep popping into my head for days afterwards and give me the same feeling as it did when I saw it firsthand. I don't seek out these scenes. Most of the time, I don't even know they're a part of the movie or TV show until it's too late. But I feel like the triggering feeling I get from these portrayals of anal sex are also contributing to my dislike of it. I want to make my husband happy and be the GGG partner I feel he deserves. He's an amazing partner and has always been GGG for me. But I don't know how I can work past this physical and emotional distaste to be able to enjoy this type of sex. Am I doomed to have occasional terrible experiences for the sake of making him happy in this way? Or is it possible to make something I have such a negative association with at this point a pleasurable experience for both of us? You tell me your husband is a nice guy, a good guy, a good, nice guy who's invested in your pleasure and who cares about you. And I'm going to give you the benefit of some very grave doubts that I have and extend the benefit of those very grave doubts to your husband and assume that he does not know exactly how you feel about anal sex, exactly how much it hurts, exactly how much it traumatizes you and your trauma around anal is legitimate. Even if you've never been sexually assaulted, you can experience it as traumatic and unpleasant. Otherwise, I mean, if he knew, he wouldn't be attempting to initiate anal sex with you at all if he knew how little you enjoyed it. Now, Being GGG, being good giving in game, sometimes means that you do things for your partner's pleasure that don't necessarily turn you on. But as I've said a hundred million times, you don't do things that leave you curled up in the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom after it's over crying. And it sounds like you're there or very nearly there. And the flip side of GGG is really the price of admission. You know, we all pay the price of admission to be with our partners and not everybody gets everything they want sexually in an exclusive relationship or even an open relationship. And being with you, the price of admission for being with you, for your husband really should be that as much as he likes anal, he doesn't get to do it because you tried after a decade, you tried, you tried again and again and again, and it doesn't work for you. Not only does it 
not feel good. Not only is there no pleasure there for you, it's not something that you can be expected to indulge him in because it leaves you feeling used, traumatized. It's painful for you every single time. You don't feel good about it. And I worry that if you keep having sex that you hate with the man that you love, you really do risk the the hate that's that's really about the act leaping from the act to the man. And you have to be on your guard against that. Yes, he likes it. Have you told him how intensely you dislike it? If he knows how intensely you dislike it and he wants to do it with you anyway, then I'm sorry – the benefit of the doubt evaporates there. And I don't perceive him any longer as the good, loving, considerate guy that you've attempted to present him as. So you really need to talk to him. You really need to talk to him about you've tried, you've tried for years. It's still unpleasant emotionally and physically for you. It's not only not giving you any pleasure, it's inflicting pain on you and benefit of the doubt, kicking back into gear. If he's the good, loving guy that you say that he is, I would expect him to stop attempting to initiate anal sex. You can love somebody's ass. You can hit them on the ass. You can squeeze their ass without having to penetrate their ass. You can appreciate someone's ass. He can eat your ass. He can feel your ass up. There's all sorts of things he can do with your ass that don't involve penetration. And if he understood how unpleasant penetration was for you, is for you, he wouldn't attempt to involve you in penetrative anal sex at all. Pivoting to your question, is there a way for this to become pleasurable for you? Well, you say you don't come from penetrative sex at all. So outer course, having your clip played with toys, vibrators, fingers, oral sex. I assume those are the ways that he gets you off prior to or after or both prior to and after penetrative vaginal intercourse that you presumably enjoy and penetrative anal intercourse that you do not enjoy at all that is physically painful and unpleasant for you and he should stop attempting to initiate. If you wanted to see if you were capable of experiencing anal penetration and pleasure at the same time, then anal is something that you need to explore on your own and for yourself. That means getting some mild penetration toys, some small butt plugs, maybe a small vibrating butt plug and using it during solo play, put it in, turn it on, and then play with yourself. Do whatever it is that you normally do when you masturbate and have a few dozen, maybe a hundred orgasms with your anus engaged, with feeling penetrated and feeling pleasure at the same time. And maybe you can create an association between penetration and pleasure that works for you. And then the next hundred times that you attempt anal sex, if you're going to attempt it still with your husband, I really don't think that you should, but if you want to, if you're going to attempt it rather than it's him fucking you, it's you using his dick as that penetrative toy that you put in your ass while you pleasure yourself. It's not about him fucking you. The first hundred times that his dick is in the room while you are experiencing some anal stimulation, like the previous hundred times when it was just you and the toy and masturbation with anal penetration, get his dick in you and he just sits still and he breathes and he does whatever he needs to do between his ears or with his hands or with his mouth on your tits or kissing you to stay hard and you masturbate. You get off with his dick in you and then his dick comes out of you and he doesn't fuck you. And if you can come with his dick in you a few hundred times, Maybe then the next hundred times he can move his dick a little bit. He can 
move it back and forth just a little bit while you pleasure yourself. And I'm exaggerating the numbers of times that you need to do this. Maybe not a hundred times during masturbation and then a hundred times with this dick in you without him fucking you. Maybe, you know, a couple of dozen and a couple of dozen and you can build up to something closer to the kind of anal sex that he would like to be having that you might then enjoy because you've created this strong association between your ass feeling filled and there being something in your ass and you getting off, not you grinning and bearing it and clutching the sheets to get him off, but you getting off. And if it comes about you and your pleasure, then maybe all those representations of, of anal sex uh, on television where it's brutal and violating or in the context of sexual assault or rape won't affect you so much because you won't be associating the kind of anal sex you're having with your husband with those kinds of feelings of pain and violation. But that's a long road. And it seems to me, you know, you've been together 10 years or you were together 10 years before you tried this and you've been doing it for years now. It may never work. You could do everything that I just told you to do and it's not going to get you there. And you may never get there. And not getting to have anal may be the price of admission that your husband has to pay to be with you. And you have every right to insist that he pay that price to be with you. And you need to let him know that anal is as unpleasant and painful and emotionally fraught, if not traumatizing. You need to let him know that as clearly as you let me and all of my listeners know that. And that becomes an acid test. If you let him know all that and he keeps wanting to fuck you, keeps asking to fuck you, keeps pressuring you, to have anal intercourse with him, not saying divorce the motherfucker or dump the motherfucker already. I am saying you might want to reassess the motherfucker, however, because that doesn't sound like a good guy to me. That sounds like a selfish asshole. Hi, Dan. I'm a 50-year-old woman in Colorado, straight woman. I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been listening to you and reading your column for a long, long time and really just decided I wanted to pick your brain on something that's been bugging me for a few years. Back when I was on the dating scene, I met a guy on some website and uh, went on one date with him. In the course of that date, he shared with me that he liked to stretch out women's genitals, vagina, the whole, all of it. And I was so upset by it. I don't even remember the details. I just remember the way he described it sounded to me like he liked to mutilate women's bodies. And so I was openly horrified and told him I would never do anything like that and never saw the guy again or talk to him again. And I just don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the internet with this one. I would love to hear what you have to say about it. Is this a thing? Is it a psychopath thing? Am I overreacting to something that's just kind of a normal kink for people that I just wasn't aware of? Stretching, vaginal, anal. It's a thing. It's a thing some people like having done to their holes, not just a thing some people like doing to other people's holes. Dive onto dirty Twitter, take a deep dive into dirty Twitter, and it won't take you long to find examples of people doing this. Mostly, most of the videos you'll find are people doing this to themselves. Some of them are people doing it to others. It's definitely not, if we're talking about vaginal stretching here, anal stretching, not anal ripping or vaginal ripping or tearing, it's not a psychopath thing, although I'm sure there are some psychopaths out there who enjoy it. You could say the same about a lot of things, though. Deep dish pizza, not a psychopath thing. But some psychopaths, some psychopaths like me, really enjoy deep dish pizza. And The Masked Singer and Josh Howley. There's lots of things out there that psychopaths and non-psychopaths enjoy. 
I want to back up for a second, though, before we continue to do our deep dive into stretching. You say you met this guy on some website and you went on a date. I'm curious as to whether this was a kink website or a vanilla website. Was it FetLife or was it Tinder? And, and that matters. If you met this guy on Tinder and you went on your first coffee date or your first date date and he immediately launches into or very early in that date, launches into his kinks and he's talking about vaginal stretching. Well, not sure if he's a psychopath, but definitely – Poor judgment, bad impulse control, no common sense. But if he met you on a kink site like FetLife, it may not have been out of bounds for him to bring up his kinks or his main kink early on in the date to see if, you know, it already having been established that you're both kinky because you met on FetLife to, you know, toss your kinks out there on the table and see if you're kink compatible. If this horrifies you, I don't know why you want to hear more about it. And I don't see, you know, if just hearing about it horrified you, I don't see that there's much of a difference between hearing about it from some straight guy that you're never, ever going to see again and hearing about it from the gay guy whose sex podcast you listen to every week who you are going to hear from again. But if all you want me to do is confirm that you were right to run from this guy, indeed you were. Not because he's a psychopath necessarily. He could be, but this doesn't prove it. But because – you were really not into this. You were really not into the way he rolled it out. You were really not into the assumptions he made about your sexual interest in him or your kinks, even if you met on FetLife. You were not a match. But again, vaginal stretching, anal stretching, some people with vaginas, some people with anuses are really into that. It's not about mutilation. It's about gradually working with and enjoying, both parties enjoying, large, larger, and largest Insertion toys. Again, stretching. If that's the word he used, it's not about tearing. It's not about ripping. It's not about pain. The vagina is very elastic and can accommodate large toys. That doesn't mean that large toys feel good for every woman or everyone who has a vagina or for everyone who has an anus. But for some folks, they do. For some, it's the physical sensation of being stretched. Uh, for some women, it's the pressure that a large toy can put on, you know, the the root or wings of, of the clitoris that are, you know, deeply embedded in the body and run sometimes along the vaginal canal. Uh, and for some folks, it's the symbolism of, you know, having this giant thing in them. And that excites them, you know, in the quote unquote largest sex organ, the one between the ears. And of course, it's usually some combo of both the physical sensation of being stretched, of really being filled up and the emotional, psychological, the, you know, erotic symbolism of taking such a large penetrative toy, of working your way up to being able to take larger toys and enjoy them. And I also want to say genital torture, shout out to the guys into CBT, cock and ball torture, and the women into inflicting CBT on the guys who are into it. And there are women out there who get off on labia torture. I think more people are comfortable with the phrase erotic genital torment, but the phrase people use in Kinkland is genital torture, CBT, cock and ball torture. Also a thing, a thing that people enjoy, not psychopaths exclusively, a thing that non-psychopaths can and do enjoy with consenting partners who enjoy that activity as much as they do. But he didn't bring up erotic genital torment. He brought up stretching. Seems to me that you leapt to a conclusion about that having to be painful or unwelcome or not something that a person with a vagina or an anus that was into stretching could ever enjoy. You couldn't wrap your head in that instant 
where he blurted that out, perhaps inappropriately and without much common sense, without filters, you couldn't conceive of someone who might, you know, be the lid for his pot, someone who might be into what he was asking, inquiring if you were into. Those people are out there. You're not one of them. You are absolutely right to run from this guy, particularly if this was a Tinder match and not a FetLife hookup. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi woman. I've been dating this guy for about 10 months, and he's got a lot of kinks. And I'm open to pretty give most anything a try. Uh, but he's submissive and luckily not into pain, but he's into like a lot of extreme bondage, like mummification. He's got, I mean, we've done saran wrap stuff. He has a body cast that he made for himself. He has several chassis devices. Uh, he likes breath play, likes to be pissed on. I pissed in his mouth. I have pissed in his ass with a speculum meant for a cow because he likes really extreme stuff up his ass too. Like, um, 18 inch dildo fits up there. Like I, okay. I've never, I never pegged anyone before him and I do really enjoy it actually, but he, he wants such giant dildos that they won't even fit on the harnesses I've gotten. And uh, yikes. Also, it takes a lot of time for him to clean out before one of these extreme ass sessions. Uh, so it makes me really anxious because like I have to commit six hours prior for him to do all this stuff. And then I feel like I have to perform. So th that causes a lot of issues. And I just wonder if you think we could make it work or if you could suggest like an online sex therapist, maybe. All right. I want to know what you left out. You got cow speculums in, pissing up his ass, 18-inch dildos, mummification, and then you basically hinted that there's a lot of things you weren't listing or including in the call. What didn't make the call? What got left out? We have a lot of arguments where he says, like, you know, you're just not into this. Nobody's into this. He gets all upset. No one's into this. Mm -hmm. Um, and and he's like, you don't let yourself have fun with it. Um, like I said, a lot of it is uh, the danger aspect. Like I'll, you know, I just read heard something on a about someone getting their uh, bowel punctured, and and he just gets upset when I point that out. Um, but it's I'm worried about his safety. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're taking your time and you're using a lot of lube and he's a practiced giant ass toy bottom, you're unlikely to injure him. But that's not really the, the, the problem here. He's a submissive and that's fine. You're exhausted and that's not okay. Yeah. That he needs to have realistic expectations around the pace of this. And I think if the pace of it wasn't so frantic – that you would be a happier and more GGG and accommodating partner. But it seems like every time you do one thing, he asks for three more and his expectations yeah. inflate along with whatever you're shoving up his ass. And that's what he needs to get in check. It's not that you aren't into his kinks. It's not that you don't enjoy them. You said you really enjoyed pegging him and you've kind of grown into enjoying some of his crazier kinks, but He's asking for too much, too fast, and the escalation, it's just inconsiderate. What it telegraphs to you from him is these activities are more important to him than your comfort level, your sexual satisfaction, and 
it also signals that he's taking you for granted, and that's a libido killer. It is rare for a straight or bi male submissive to find a female partner who can do 10% or is up for doing 10% of the stuff you've already done with him. Yeah. And he's going to lose you and lose what you two might be capable of doing together, growing into together, enjoying together. If he can't slow his fucking roll. Yeah, it seems like there's just, he always just wants, like he's always looking for the next thing. Like it's all, there's always new toys and, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, one of the ways that yeah, a couple yeah, can keep <laughs> sex exciting is to keep experimenting and, and, and trying new toys and trying new things. But the pace needs to be human. And he needs to just accept that he's out in front of you, that he's probably kinkier than 99.99% of the kinky people out there. And what he's asking you to do is to kind of grow into his kinks. He needs to give you some fucking time. He also needs to give you attention. He needs to give you vanilla sex. He needs to meet your needs. And if he needs to play a little loop in his head, you know, with his kinks or the thing he wants to try next, when you guys are having more relaxed sex, less involved sex, then that's what he's got to do. So you feel like your needs are being met too. He's your partner too. And that you're not just another toy, another inanimate object that he's shoving up his ass. Yeah, it definitely feels like that sometimes. The the tone of your voice, when you listen to your call, when you hear your own question, you sound exhausted. Uh, We were were just fighting a lot, and and yeah, I was feeling really exhausted about it. Uh, So it's kind of it's 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 kind of on an upswing, but basically, I have to just like give it, you know. How long have you been seeing? Pound his ass. Um, like ten months. Okay. Do you think you could take more ten more months of this? Um, yeah, I mean there's a lot of good in the relationship. So I you know, I, I've posted on Fimdom uh Reddit stuff and of course all the chicks are like, Get rid of him, get rid of him, hey, he's kinking from the kink dispenser top and from the bottom, all right, that shit. Right. Um I'm I'm not telling you to like, get rid of him. I'm I'm suggesting that I appreciate that. Maybe you get a, a kink positive couples counselor. And this has to be a, a reset of his expectations and demands he's making. And also, you know, if you say maybe we'll peg tonight and he preps, that doesn't obligate you to follow through. If you're not in the mood or it's not working for you for some reason, you get to bail even if he cleaned out. Just like I I don't know. You get to bail even if your partner took birth control, or you get to bail even if Somebody ran to the hardware store and bought all the duct tape. You still get to bail if you're not feeling it. And if he's rushing you and it just feels like these ever escalating demands and you're afraid to do the next thing because you don't know what the thing after that is, he's not bringing you along. He's not letting you grow into kink together with him. He's hustling you along. He's pressuring you. And he's going to ruin this relationship if he can't get a handle on that. Yeah. And I got to say, you know, in Kinkland, there are time-saving devices. You know, if somebody's into mummification with the saran wrap and the duct tape, that takes forever. Get a sleep sack. Invest in a sleep sack. Sounds like he might have some of that higher-end, more extreme gear that can make, you know, the hour-and-a-half mummification process literally a two-minute zip-the-zipper, buckle-the-straps process. And it's feels just like mummification. So maybe there's some time-saving toys you guys could be investing in. And then having making dates. 
you know, on Friday night we do this or on Friday night's a bondage night or, you know, every two weeks it's a like, let's go crazy on your ass. And that doesn't mean if we set a date that, you know, we have to follow through. It's just like, you know, maybe it's every other Sunday we do this or maybe it's every other Wednesday we do this Wednesday night. But if things intervene, if life intervenes and I'm not feeling it or you're not feeling it, we can do it on Thursday, but like roughly every two weeks. So he has that to look forward to. You can dirty talk about the kinky sex that's coming on Friday or next Wednesday when you're having basically vanilla sex. And sometimes for kinky people, that's enough to, to, to have dirty talk during vanilla sex about the kinky shit you've done or you're going to do is enough to make that vanilla sex also as fulfilling for them as the kinky sex is that anticipation. That's something that a lot of kinky people are really good at is the anticipation of a scheduled big kink night or kink event itself is exciting. Yeah. And so long as it doesn't ruin vanilla for you to talk about some of his kinks to give him that, maybe that's one way to dial it back and for there to be less pressure on you. You just sound like someone who's under a lot of pressure and you're going to crack eventually. And he needs to get, uh, a, and he needs to get, a handle on that because everything he fears that you're not as kinky as he is that it's gonna he's gonna drive you away all those fears are gonna come true if he can't get a grip yeah i've pretty much been uh, he said he needs it like at least once a week but now it's turning into like a couple times a week and i he <laughs> i don't know we had had a big session and like a day or two later just a lot of stuff going on he's like should i clean out and i rolled my eyes and boy then he just like i've ruined him for I don't know. He can clean out (laughs) and and have a solo session and you don't have to roll your eyes about that. And then maybe if he's cleaned out and he's having a solo session and you feel like jumping in, you can. You just have to figure out a way to incorporate his kinks into your daily lives so they're just present, but it's not so much pressure on you to perform Yeah, every single time. And, you know, most kinky people are, are, are subs and bottoms who want things done to them. And a lot of people who are tops are frustrated subs or, you know, subs who are playing the top role because they have a sub's imagination. And it can be a higher degree of difficulty, a higher bar to clear when you ask somebody who's not kinky, who doesn't have a sub's imagination to top you like this. And it takes time for that yeah, person to... Yeah, I feel to, like, where do I get all these ideas Right, from? it takes time for you to just, learn. It takes time I, for you I, to I, learn and then maybe have some ideas of your own, but... 10 months, he's rushing it. He's rushing you. And he needs to knock that the fuck off and maybe going to a kink-positive therapist who's kinky themselves, who will say that to him, will help him appreciate what he's got in you, where you are now, and not ruin where you could end up together by making too many demands of you in a, in a single week. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. Hi, Dan. Uh, This is a 28-year-old from Canada. I have a pretty intense fetish that I always struggle to know when to bring up when I start seeing someone new. Um, Basically, I have a kink within the gaming community. Um, For me, it runs pretty deep where I picture myself gaining a ton of weight, it ties into a lot of like humiliation, both privately and publicly, uh, that I enjoy to fantasize about. And while I definitely get off on this and have got on on this for years uh, and have experimented a bit with it, both just solo by myself and with other partners, I know it's not something that I will pursue uh, long term. You know, I I want to get married eventually. I want to have a family, and I know that's being 
you know, a 600 pound father is not exactly the most responsible choice to make. Um, so I know for me, it's just fancy, but I've run into it a couple of times where I've told the previous partner and he was quite weirded out about it and just wouldn't ever even discuss it with me. Um, I know that there's a lot of fat phobia, obviously that ties into people's reaction to me telling them about this kink. Um, and I'm seeing someone new who's just honestly an amazing person. Um, he's bisexual and I'm the first quote unquote man that he's seeing. Um, and he's, he's coming into his own sexuality and I've been very understanding and delicate about that process with him. Um, but I definitely don't want to just scare him off being like, Hey, uh, I'm into this kink. And you know, if you gain a bunch of weight, I'm really going to enjoy it. And I would never want him to do anything to his body that he didn't want to do, but I don't know. I'm just wondering where I strike that balance of being honest about my sexual desires and that reality without scaring someone else and uh, being genuine. Are these fantasies that you want to realize that you want to act on or are these fantasies that you want to be indulged in, to jack off about, to fantasize about out loud with a partner without ever gaining 600 pounds or without ever feeding your partner to a point where they've gained 600 pounds. It's an important distinction and you're going to want some clarity about that before you bring this up, before you roll it out for your new partner. It's obvious why someone might have these fantasies, particularly someone who's gay, where there's a lot of pressure in gay land to have a certain kind of body. There's a kind of body conformity. There's a kind of gay male beauty standard around, you know, abs and tits and shoulders and people's erotic imaginations often push back against that. You know, where there are taboos, where there are norms, our transgressive erotic imaginations will sometimes want to violate those taboos and transgress against those norms. And so, yeah, of course, in a gay male culture that's hyper body conscious, some of us, some gay men are going to react to that in a kind of erotic opposition and, and carry it to a fetishistic extreme. You see that all over with people's sexualities. You see our erotic imaginations rebelling against what it is we're told we're supposed to do, told we're supposed to like, told we're supposed to look like, told is right, told is wrong, told is pleasurable, told is painful. Our erotic imaginations are impishly contradictory in that way. They just like to flip over tables. They are puckish. And someone with a sophisticated understanding of how sexuality and eroticism works should be able to wrap his head around that. You might want to encourage your boyfriend, if you want to have this conversation, to read with you uh, Dr. Jack Morin's book, The Erotic Mind, which really goes into how fantasies and fetishes work and, and where they come from and what's going on in our heads when something that seems so, quote unquote, wrong becomes powerfully arousing. So it just might help to put that book into his hands. I recommend that book, The Erotic Mind, Dr. Jack Morin. If you're going to have this conversation with your new boyfriend, when you get to that point where you are laying all your kink cards down on the table and when you lay your kink cards down on the table, you have to do it without succumbing to shame. Your boyfriend is very likely to still, at least at first, have a negative reaction. We are all raised in a very deeply sex negative and particularly kink negative culture. 
And a lot of people, when their partner lays their kink out on the table for the very first time, if it's not a kink that by some happy Yahtzee coincidence that they share, have a kind of gut impulse reflex negative reaction. You got to brace yourself for that. The first time you tell your boyfriend about your transgressive feeder gainer kink, he is very likely to be like, ugh, what? Ugh, no. Don't react to that. Don't take that to heart. Let him sit with it for a while. Often after a person whose initial reaction was negative to their partner's kink has some time to sit with it, has some time to think about it, is allowed to ask some questions of their partner about it, including asking their partner to explain why this thing that seems so out there or unlikely or not arousing for them arouses them. And if you can have those kinds of conversations, if you don't run from him or you're not too butthurt or wounded or upset if his initial reaction is negative, he may come around. He may get to a place where even if he doesn't want to gain 600 pounds, he can indulge you through fantasy, through role play, through dirty talk, maybe through some nights of just absolute off the hook, ridiculous Gluttony followed up by a lot of cardio and a lot of hitting the gym and a lot of well-balanced meals so that he doesn't gain the weight or you don't gain the weight depending on who's feeding and who's being fed when you guys have one of those nights where he indulges you with not the reality of having gained 600 pounds but the threat of having gained 600 pounds. You know, listening to your call, I was thinking of a friend of mine whose ultimate fantasy is to be castrated. But what's sexy for him is the threat because, of course, that's something you can only do once and he's really not interested in it actually happening. And as much as some part of his you know, erotic reptile brain would really like that to happen, his higher intelligence knows that that's actually not something that he wants ha to happen. He doesn't want to have to take hormones for the rest of his life. He doesn't want to, to live with the consequences of this thing that he didn't choose to turn him on. It just kind of does turn him on. And what he wound up with, and I think I've talked about him once before on the show, was a partner who threatens him with it but doesn't do it and that he can trust not to do it, trust to put him in positions where he could, if he chose at that moment, talking about bondage, of course, castrate him and threatens in that moment to castrate him but then doesn't do it. Seems to me that if you want to have your kink and have a healthy body – Two, and a healthy body can be a larger body, but you know what I mean. There's a difference between 250, 300, and 600 pounds. If you want to have your kink in a relatively healthy body too, you can find somebody who can go there with you to threaten you with the 600 pounds of weight gain and enjoy the threat and enjoy your response to that threat and indulge each other or be indulged yourself in that way. Get your boyfriend a copy of The Erotic Mind. might help if you read it too. Recommend it actually to everybody out there listening right now. And good luck. Good luck with the conversation that uh, I think you can have and should have with your bisexual boyfriend. Just be braced for that initial negative reaction and don't head for the hills. Don't run screaming. Stay put and keep talking. Hey, Dan. I am a 34-year-old cis woman, and I feel like I should know the answer to this question. So what is the definition of multiple orgasm for women? Uh, I haven't asked Google because I feel like that could just really not be that helpful. But so I always thought multiple orgasm had to mean multiple orgasms without stopping contact. But then I realized that maybe... Um, because we don't have a refractory period that 
any amount of orgasms in a single session would be multiple orgasms. And this all came up for me because I, I decided I'd never had one because I hadn't ever had one without stopping contact. So in the shower, using the shower head, I went ahead and had my first orgasm and then I kept going and it felt good. It didn't really feel like it was going to be necessarily fruitful, but it felt good. And then it was feeling really good. So then I was like, oh yeah, here we go. This is happening. And that went on. And then suddenly I had, I had to stop. I realized I had a pain in my head. I had the worst, most ear splitting headache I have ever, ever had. And I'm not prone to headaches. So I guess that's another question is what did I do to myself in the shower? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, professor at Indiana University, sex researcher, frequent Savage Lovecast guest, author of numerous books, including Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. Hey, Dr. Herbenick, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on the phone. So we talk all the time about how women are potentially multi-orgasmic, unlike most men. But what do we mean by multiple orgasms? How do you define that? You know, I generally think about multiple orgasms as orgasms that happen while maintaining some level of arousal in between. So it doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, keeping like a finger or a tongue or a penis or a toy right there, but it's maintaining some type of stimulation or arousal. And I would also just say it's not so clear cut of a definition. I think where I stop calling, personally stop calling something a multiple orgasm is if, for example, somebody's having an orgasm in a sexual encounter and you sort of like move on and you're doing other things and like 10 minutes later, you know, you might have an orgasm. Those feel much more separate to me. So it's not a disqualifier for thinking of yourself as multi-orgasmic is after an orgasm, you need the person you're with to lighten up, to stop providing so much clitoral sensation, if that's what they've been doing, clitoral stimulation, if that's been doing, move on to something else and then circle back. But it's kind of orgasms close together without a break in the action, but the action might morph a little bit. Yeah, I I would say that's the general way of thinking about it. But, you know, I, I just feel too, like throughout my career, whenever I get these questions about really defining multiple orgasm. I mean, there's always that part of me that that sort of wonders why, right? Like, why does it matter? Is it to measure ourselves up to some standard or some capacity or some, you know, acrobatic act of sex? And, and so I guess I'm, I'm always searching for the, the parts of sex that we can kind of like liberate ourselves in a way rather than worrying about a definition. Um, but I know that some people just wonder and they think about it and that's, you know, and that's fine too. But there's nothing defective with a woman who no. is a one and done. No. And there's nothing defective with like no orgasm and there's nothing defective with like 32 orgasms and you want a 33rd, you know, it's, um, I think a lot, it's very common for people of all sorts of genders and genitals to want a break after some sexual stimulation to the point of orgasm. And then there's also tons of people who loved it, enjoyed it and then want more. And those are just, you know, different ways of experiencing sexuality. And some people experience, you know, one on one day and a different, a different, you know, approach to it the very next day. And that's just about exploring and enjoying sex. So the caller mentions refractory periods. What is a refractory period? So usually, especially when we think about like, um, you know, about penises, for example, usually we think about 
refractory periods as being the time from one ejaculation to the capacity for the next ejaculation. So not the next erection, because a lot of people can get an erection, but then not the next ejaculation. So it's really about, you know, the ejaculatory uh, time period. And so I think, you know, that's why we often think of like, you know, people with vulvas and vaginas not really having refractory periods in the same way. Most men during their refractory periods tend to lose interest. Like what was just so exciting or or thrilling or arousing is suddenly not only no longer arousing, but in some cases for a lot of men, kind of a turn off. They have to sort of withdraw from being engaged sexually, erotically. You know, some guys who, you know, they have their orgasm and their partner hasn't come yet uh, have to get it through their heads that you need to like stay in the game for your partner, even if your interest in sex is sort of tanked or cratered at that moment. But that's natural. That's sort of pulling away. Yeah, we don't fully understand it, but there have been a couple, you know, to me, really interesting studies where they've taken men who um, who don't seem to have the refractory period that most do, and they have tracked like their their hormones. And what they found is that those who sort of just keep, you know, being able to ejaculate one after another, generally don't have um, like this this high increase in something called prolactin, which reflects like feeling satiated. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's like the, the increase in prolactin that's causing the refractory period, but it does seem to reflect it in some way. And that's, that's something I often think about is sort of what's going on in our bodies that makes us feel like, yeah, like enough or withdraw or, or I don't need any more. I'm not interested. Um, but there are things happening in our bodies as well as, of course, our minds. But do women have that same flood of prolactin after an orgasm? Uh, does, no, it doesn't seem to be at all the same pattern. And so, you know, again, I wouldn't say at all that this is figured out, but it is a difference that we see, uh, you know, between sexes, but we also see it to some degree within, you know, within the sex. Most males would have, um, you know, you know, an inability to have like quick ejaculations again. I have been with one guy. I've been with a lot of guys. I've only been with one guy in all my long sorted history of being with guys who didn't have a refractory period, who uh, didn't have that flood of prolactin that sort of shut his dick down and could ejaculate again and again and again in very, you know, one right after the other without ever losing erection, sort of a superpower, but very uncommon. Yeah. How did he feel about that? Very proud. <laughs> very much like a unicorn. All right, the, the caller had a, a question also about orgasms after headaches. We got another question on that subject. Let me play the, the other question, and then we'll tackle them both. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight cis woman in the Southeast, and I've been happily married for a couple of years, but my question has to do about sex headaches. On occasion, my husband will get really intense sex headaches, and I'm just wondering how common is this? Basically, right after we have sex, we'll have a really intense headache after, after having an orgasm. It'll just take him a couple of minutes to recover from, and I'm just curious is this common? Does this happen a lot? And if so, um, what typically causes it? And is there anything that we should be concerned about? Um, it's not every time. It's just on occasion. So I was just wondering if there's any research out there or if it even has a term or a name that would help us look up kind of what's going on. So Dr. Benning, how common is this for people to have sort of a sharp, sudden, short headache after climaxing. 
you know, headaches connected with orgasm are not unheard of. Sometimes they happen leading up to orgasm. Sometimes they happen or that they start at the point of orgasm and are just for a little bit afterwards. And so the limited research on it seems to suggest it's about 1% of the population. And it's overwhelmingly more male than female. About three times as many men compared to women will report having headaches associated with orgasm. Um, so, you know, we hear about it, but, but it is uncommon. What do they think causes this? Um, so there's different, you know, different things. Sometimes people are just prone to migraines. Sometimes people um, have much more serious health issues that are going on. Sometimes the cause isn't understood, but it doesn't seem to be a reflection of anything worrisome. So most of the time it's, you know, a healthcare provider would take a look and say, look, things seem to be okay. You seem to be healthy. This is sort of just a fluke of the way that your body is working. And other times something is more serious. For example, somebody might have an aneurysm. So generally if, you know, a person hasn't had this experience before and then they have a sudden headache, a severe headache, especially if they had a, a headache associated with things like nausea or vomiting or um, you know, a high temperature or seizure, um, anything really kind of out of out of the range of, of normal, um, that you would want to mention that to a healthcare provider. Certainly, if you've got the nausea, vomiting with the, the huge headache coming on, I would, you know, treat it actually pretty urgently and call a healthcare provider. Um, so again, most of the time, it's not going to be something to worry about, but every now and then it is. And so it is worth screening with a healthcare provider. Do people where it's not a huge concern, it's not a sign of some other uh, truly troubling um, underlying health problem. Do people who sometimes get these headaches find them to be so unpleasant that they have to to weigh each sexual encounter, you know, decide if somebody's headache worthy in the same way Elaine on Seinfeld had to decide if somebody was sponge worthy? Can they be bad enough for people to hesitate to have an orgasm, but not so bad that it's a sign that anything serious is wrong? Yes. I've definitely heard from people over the years who do, you know, avoid sex or decide to have sex only sometimes or decide to have sex, but not to the point of orgasm because of that. Um, but on the other hand, you know, as, you know, medicine and science have improved, doctors have figured out that there are some medications that people can take to preemptively avoid the, you know, to avoid the orgasm headache. So for people who want to keep having orgasms, but don't want to, to have the headache, you can look into that. There's been less research, but a little bit showing some benefits for some people in terms of having manual therapy. So going to a chiropractor and seeing if there's something that's diagnosable and treatable, um, you know, in, in that regard too. So there, you know, there is help for some people to sort of return to an active sex life and orga- in the orgasm life, but avoid the headache. And in the case of the first caller, it had only happened, it's only happened to her this one time. Seems to me that if that could be as much of a coincidence as anything else, not anything to be concerned about unless it continues to happen and it gets worse. Maybe. I was I was struck by the severity of it. Um, so because it was such a severe headache, it's still something that if it were me, I would want to check in with my healthcare provider about. Um, but again, most of the time it is going to be benign. Dr. Debbie Herbenek, professor at Indiana University, sex researcher, frequent guest. We really appreciate every time you come on on the Savage Lovecast. Check out her book, Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. Thank you so much, Dr. Herbenek. It's always so nice to hear you. Hey, Dan. I'm a lesbian who is dating a bisexual woman who recently came out to her family. Her family did not take the news very well. They asked her ridiculous questions like, are you just lonely because of quarantine? And are you being influenced by social media? And what's your career going to look like? 
they are a little bit older, a little conservative. So what can you do about that? But, you know, she's having a really hard time with it. Um, she really would love for her parents to just be happy for her and come around. So my question is, like, any advice on, like, what we can maybe give her parents, like a book or something to help them understand the situation or any resources that we could send them to to help them to cope with this? Or, I mean, any com- maybe conversations that you recommend having with her parents? I don't know, honestly. I just feel like they are really, really upset about the situation. Um, and I feel very bad for my girlfriend because she, you know, she really loves her parents and she just wants to make them proud. And it's just a shitty situation. Um, I, I've never dealt with this personally. Like my parents were very cool when I came out. They didn't give a shit. So yeah, I just don't know how to be the best partner for her in this situation. So if any advice on how we can There's a recommended reading list at PFLAG, used to stand for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. It's an organization that's been around four decades. They do tremendous work. There are support groups that they run for parents whose children have just come out to them. But if you're looking for some recommended reading, you can find it at PFLAG. Used to stand for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, and now it just stands for PFLAG, the organization, because, of course, we're not just talking about lesbians and gays, we're also talking about bisexual people, trans people, asexual people, etc. And they have recommended readings at PFLAG that cover all those different non-lesbian, non-gay identities. So what to do about your parents? Well, no, not your parents, your girlfriend's parents. What to do about them? Well, I think you need to give them just a little bit of time. They have to understand, not that your relationship with their daughter is non-negotiable. You guys may or may not be together for the rest of your lives. They have to understand that their daughter's sexuality, their sexual orientation is non-negotiable and that they're not going to be able to manipulate their daughter out of being who she is or out of the relationship that she's in now by having a tantrum. The thing about tantrums, whether toddlers are having them or parents of adult children are having them. And it's weird how many parents of adult children think tantrums work when they didn't let the adult child that they're having the tantrum about her in front of. They didn't let that child's tantrums work when they were two. But there's so many parents out there who think they can control their kids by having these sorts of tantrums. So my advice to your girlfriend would be to say to her parents, and I've given this advice a lot and I've gotten a lot of feedback from people over the years that it works well, to say to the parents, this is going to take some time for you to adjust to. You have a year. Ask me any asshole question that you want and I will not get angry. I will answer it to the best of my ability and I will not hold a grudge because you're asking me these questions, hopefully not out of malice but out of ignorance and ignorance I can address and then engage. Let them ask awful questions. Let them have a year to get used to this new information about their daughter. And it used to be not the rule, but the exception to have parents that accepted you if you were queer. Now, of course, I think the shoe is a little bit on the other foot. It is exceptional to have parents who reject you. Still happens, but we don't go into these coming outs with our parents these days expecting rejection, even if the first reaction is negative or a tantrum, it does seem that in the long run, more parents these days come around to full acceptance and embracing their children for who they are and embracing their children's partners. 
If mine could do it 40 years ago, your girlfriend's parents can do it now. And I would say to your girlfriend if she called me that these conversations, giving your parents that year, they may say some things that are just horrible. Just as you, when you were a child and you were throwing fits and having tantrums, not just at two, but also at 14, may have said some things to your parents that were horrible and malicious and hurtful. And your parent, if they're a good and decent and loving parent, doesn't hold on to the resentment, doesn't hold on to the anger of that moment. Whenever that moment was when you said horrible, shitty things to your parents, they let that go. And the trick is adult queer children, when we come out to our parents and they have a negative reaction is we have to, when they come around, not hold on to the anger, not hold on to the hurt that we felt in the first couple of weeks, first couple of months, sometimes even the first couple of years after we came out to our parents and they said shitty things to us in anger, in ignorance, whichever. Once they come around, you have to let that go in the same spirit that your parents let whatever shitty things that you said to them that you don't remember, that I promise you, your parents remember, they let it go. And you will have to let it go too. Or she, your girlfriend, when her parents come around, will have to let it go. Go to PFLAG, check out the recommended reading lists, stand your ground, make sure her parents understand, make sure she is telling her parents that this isn't something she's willing to bargain away. It's not something she can bargain away for their acceptance or their affections or anything else. And finally, if you're a longtime listener, I'm sure you've heard me say this before, your only leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. And if they, after a year, can't be decent and kind, even if they're not all the way there yet to full acceptance, if they can't be civil and polite and decent and kind, not just to her, but also to you, don't make yourselves present. Withdraw from them and make sure they understand why you're withdrawing from them. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old pansexual woman in Arizona. I recently had a procedure that's called a vestibulectomy. Um, it's basically vagina surgery um, to help with pain that I was experiencing. And now my gynecologist is having me use dilators to help the tissues heal and get used to the feeling of like being, I guess, stretched. The only thing is I find it extremely unsexy. My partner is like totally down for the idea of like using the dilators during sex. And I just find it to be the worst thing ever. Like, it's just unsexy and unappealing, and it just makes me sad. Um, so I was wondering if you had any advice on ways that we could try to make it more fun, because it's, it's something I have to do if I want to have PIV, which is definitely something I want. Um, I just have to get over this hangup of the dilators not being sexy and enjoyable. Dilators are basically a set of little dildos, little insertables in a variety of sizes from very skinny, very small to larger and larger. And they help people. They help people like you, Caller, who are having problems uh, with penetrative sex. Stretch, learn to accommodate, learn to enjoy again that feeling. And if they're not sexy for you, well, maybe you shouldn't be incorporating them or attempting to use them during sex. You want to be relaxed when you use them. You want to be very well lubricated when you use them, I don't think it's a bad idea to incorporate them into masturbation or some sort of sex play, either solo or with your partner. So you make a positive association, an erotic association. So you wire your brain to enjoy that feeling, to have powerful erotic associations between being penetrated, feeling filled up, even feeling a little bit 
stretched and you want to take that really slow. That's why dilators come in an array of sizes. You want to take that slow and, and to make that positive association, to associate having that in with an orgasm, I think it's going to help you as you heal and transition hopefully back to the penetrative sex that you used to enjoy or look forward to enjoying. If they themselves are too symbolic of a medical condition and dilators can look kind of medical, they can look kind of cheap. Remember, they're just penetration toys, basically. And you can replace them with a variety of insertable toys of different sizes. Dilators are often also made from very hard plastics, hopefully very hard and very smooth plastic, no seams on them that might irritate the inside of your vaginal canal, but very hard and plastic. Often they're very severe looking. You can replace them. And you can replace them with a set of sex toys, of insertable sex toys in a variety of sizes, like the dilators themselves come in a variety of sizes that may be more fun for you to use and play with and less symbolic of medical treatment. There are some people out there in the medical fetish community who prefer to use dilators as insertable toys because they look so clinical, because they look so antiseptic. But if what you want to do is incorporate this kind of play and this kind of gradual stretching to, to get to the point where you can enjoy penetrative sex again and accommodate your partner's dick again in your vaginal canal, get a set of sex toys. Just replace those dull, plastic, ugly dilators with some sexy silicone groovy shapes, groovy colors, sex toys that are more symbolic of the progress you're making and the fun you're having now and less symbolic of the surgery you endured for the medical condition that's been plaguing you for however long it's been plaguing you. Good luck. Hey, Dan, I have a quick question. So if you were to put a metal butt plug in the freezer, would it stick to your skin when you inserted it? Because it doesn't, you know wet or moist skin stick to frozen surfaces like in a Christmas story where his tongue gets stuck on the pole. If you want to play with a cold butt plug, and I can certainly understand why someone would want to, that sensation isn't necessarily unpleasant. Put it in the fridge. Don't put it in the freezer. That said, even if you did put it in the freezer, by the time you took it out of the freezer, by the time you lubed it up so you could begin to put it into somebody's but it's going to gradually warm up. And you'll notice that the lubricant that you put on even a freezing cold butt plug doesn't turn to ice. And so it is going to lube it up on its way in. I wouldn't recommend it. It does seem risky. You know, one of the things we want to do with holes as we begin to put toys in them or before we put toys in them is warm them up literally and figuratively. And a cold toy can be a shock but not an unpleasant one. You can put a metal dildo into a bucket of, you know, ice water and, you know, eat somebody's hole for a little while and then lube it up and then slide that dildo in. And that sensation of the ice cold but not frozen solid dildo sliding into that wormhole can be intensely pleasurable. Please go slowly. Please ice water. Please fridge. Please not freezer. The difference between the butt plug you pull out of the bucket of ice water and the pole in A Christmas Story that the kid gets his tongue stuck to 
The difference is ambient temperature. The pole is outside in freezing weather. The butt plug that you pulled out of the bucket of ice water is inside. The ambient temperature inside is going to be room temperature. Hopefully you're playing in a heated apartment, a heated house. It's 68 degrees inside where the butt plug is as opposed to 20 below outside where the frozen pole is that you don't want to touch with your tongue. You're probably going to be okay playing with that butt plug pulled out of the bucket of ice water. It's not going to be 30 below and its temperature will be rapidly rising after you remove it from the bucket of ice water as you handle it, as you apply lubricant to it. If you begin to put that butt plug into somebody that you've chilled and you feel any resistance at all, stop. Before we get to listener response calls, let's read your tweets. Dakota Harper, VIP tweets, I start my Tuesdays listening to the Savage Lovecast, and so this morning's episode, featuring a person looking for a companion for their dad in Austin, Texas, really thrilled me. To the caller, there are absolutely full-service sex workers out there who offer cooking as part of our GFE. I'm happy to offer myself as tribute. GFE, of course, stands for Girlfriend Experience, a style of service some sex workers like Dakota Harper, VIP, provide. Last week, I talked about how much I don't like the word compersion, sometimes used to mean the opposite of jealousy, sometimes used to mean the opposite of schadenfreude. Kendra Holiday tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, do you like the word confelicity better? And she quote tweets of this, confelicity, a much underused word meaning delight in someone else's happiness, the opposite of schadenfreude. I like it, Kendra. I like it a whole lot better than I like compersion, which I do not like at all. And finally, Liliana Bagaletio, forgive me for likely butchering your last name. Liliana tweets, just heard on British TV the best term that has so many applications for your advice podcast, Dan, dignitized. You are welcome. And love the sack lunch, Dan. Let's have it again. Dignitized, like hypnotized by your dick or by a dick. An amazing word. I have a feeling you're going to be using it on the podcast a lot. Thank you, Liliana. And thank you for coming to our first sack lunch last Thursday. More than 800 people came to our first online hangout exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers last week. So we are for sure going to be doing it again every first Thursday at noon Pacific time. Go to savagelovecast.com and subscribe if you aren't already a Magnum subscriber. And then you can join me and Liliana and everybody else at the next SAC lunch. Thank you very much to everybody who tweeted about the show or posted about the show to your social media accounts. We really appreciate it. And now listener response calls. Hey, Dan. I am calling with a response call to the woman who called in episode 758, who is concerned about her ability to have big orgasms during partnered sex and the Main concern is having to have visual pornography playing while uh, she's having partner sex. One suggestion that I had, because I've actually had this problem before, is to maybe start reading erotica instead of watching a lot of pornography. By doing this, you will have to visualize a bit more the sexy things that you are reading instead of actually seeing them. So when you're having partner sex, you can visualize all of the sexy things you want to visualize instead of actually having to see them. I did find this helpful, and maybe it'll help her too. This is a response call for the pregnant mom worried about having a boy. I have a son and a daughter, and when I was pregnant with my son, everyone would tell me the same thing. Oh, he's going to be so different than your daughter, so rowdy, only going to like cars, etc. And it annoyed the hell out of me. 
I'd like to add to what Dan said and encourage you to give your baby all the things, not just the stereotypical boy stuff, and see what he gravitates toward. My daughter liked cars way more than my son does, and now my son is almost two, and his favorite things are baking and cats. Not cars, kitty cats. You got this, Mama. It's all going to be okay. This is a comment for the woman who found out she was having a boy and was really disappointed. Dan, I think your answer was completely spot on, and I agree with everything you said. But I just wanted to add one thing. As a new-ish mother myself, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I would just say to you, caller, that motherhood is a wild, wonderful, and completely bewildering journey. You said that you were disappointed that you wouldn't have the motherhood that you thought you would have. And I would just say to you, with all the love in the world, nothing about motherhood is going to be what you imagined. There's things that are far better than you could ever imagine, things that are far harder than you could ever imagine. And your children are their complete own people, regardless of how you raise them or what you do with them. They are their own human beings, (laughs) no matter what gender. So I just say that to say, maybe you can think of this disappointment as the opening salvo to a motherhood journey that is going to be full of surprises. And hopefully you can embrace that and enjoy that. And congratulations on your pregnancy. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you haven't already gotten your tickets for Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 3, now is the time. Watch some of the sexiest, kinkiest, dirtiest, and funniest short films from the last 16 years of Hump by going to humpfilmfest.com and getting your tickets now. And we've put out the call for submissions for Hump 2021. Go to humpfilmfest.com and click on Submit for everything you need to know about getting your short, dirty film into Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you for time.